speed reader. <laughs> yep, I was making my way for wow. the books, wasn't I? Yeah. <laughs> Looked like you, I fell you off. You almost the, pulled that off. Uh, I almost did. <laughs> yeah. Well, great entrance. It's Thank good you. to have you here. Awesome. Did, did you hear what Tobias was talking about? He was talking about binary. They yeah. created the QR code <laughs> yeah. with binary. Did they? Yeah, do you know I've been studying binary? Mm hmm. I got an Amazon account. <laughs> yeah. And I'm learning binary. Binary. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I didn't see that coming <laughs> at all. Uh, speaking of binary, yeah. binary, binary. We talked about binary a couple times mm -hmm. and. Um, we didn't get a lot of mail saying that was our favorite discussion. <laughs> we and, really didn't. And so I'm cooking up a binary challenge for after summer. You know, we're going into summer. We are. So this fall, we're going to have a big deal. And actually, uh, I hope a lot of you kind of get excited about this because when you get binary, when you understand, when you really get it and you develop uh, by memorizing the values of binary, you can do some amazing things with it. Our mentor, Thomas Edison, invented the light bulb. Everybody knows that. Mm -hmm. Not everybody knows he didn't make the first light bulb. He made the first light bulb that would burn for a little while, for a few days. Mm -hmm which isn't very good by today's standards with LEDs, you know, what do we want, 20 years? <laughs> but the thing that Edison did is he really made it practical. He put together the whole system, and that's very often what inventioners do. They put together a whole system that solves a problem, not just a piece. Mm -hmm. But Thomas Edison observed a problem with the light bulb. It was a curious phenomenon. And uh, the way that it appeared, when a light bulb had been running for a while, and, and he was very busy trying to get them to run longer, okay? And he had a vacuum inside the, inside the light, and he did a lot of other things like barium getters and, and other things. But after it had been running for a while, he noticed that there was a buildup on one side of the light bulb. It was kind of a cloudy, dark material would form just on one side. And he thought it was very, very strange. So he started studying it, and he built a special light bulb with another electrode so that he could study it. Remember, Thomas Edison always ran his light bulbs with direct electricity instead of alternating like mm -hmm. the world mainly uses today. He uses direct current. And that observation that he made and that he studied and he eventually even patented, oh. he call or we call the Edison effect. It has some other names now too, but it's the Edison effect. The Edison effect was the beginning of the whole computer radio revolutionary industry, which is kind of exciting. Mm -hmm. and, and we're going to get into that so we can understand it. I've been thinking about how we could do a series of discussions so we get the pieces because it is so exciting. Now, we all feel like we have the genealogy of Edison. Edison mentored Lear. Mm -hmm. Lear tried to mentor me. He did mentor me. <laughs> and I'm mentoring you, so we're all connected in that chain. And a lot of what Edison did 
that made him so successful are things that we're doing. Um, I wonder if all the students realize that Edison was a product of homeschooling. <laughs> he went to school, and that didn't work so well. So his mother homeschooled him, and he did great things. Interestingly, Bill Lear went to school, and that didn't work so well. So he ended up learning at home. And a lot of you are doing the same thing. So a lot of great inventioners come out of homeschooling. Uh, you've got to be self-motivating. Of course, it really helps if you have awesome parents. Thomas Edison had a wonderful mother that really, really did help him. But we're going to get into that. So if anybody has a chance to do some memorization and you want to get a jump on this big project, and by the way, there will be some rewards if you can complete the challenge, then start learning your binary numbers, okay? Yeah, learn binary. <laughs> we have a student here. Uh, he's just one of our students that's completely out of control. Oh, just one of but them. But he has a binary watch. Yeah. And uh, he looks at just a couple little dots, whether they're on or off, and he, he knows what time it is. And that's kind of neat to learn binary. And it's going to be valuable as so we go ahead, okay? Fair warning. Fair warning. Mm -hmm. We have a question from some of our students. We? How many we? of you the are student. there? Well, I represent all the students. Okay. So <laughs> as, as the student representative, could we please have your question? Yes. It's like Jeopardy. <laughs> are you ready? Mm -hmm. Yes. How do patents work? Fine. They work fine. They work fine. <laughs> Answer. Yes. Yeah, so patents. Thomas Edison patented the Edison effect. Right. And Thomas Edison had over 1,100 patents. Wow. Which is shocking. That makes him a record of all the U.S. inventors. 1,100 patents. And uh, this is kind of what a patent looks like. Maybe we've got an image I can show you that'll show up a little better. But this is a patent issued by the U.S. Patent Office. And the way this works is you file a claim. When you invent something, you file a claim, and the Patent Office assigns an examiner to go through and look at your claim, and they do a search to see if anybody has already invented your new idea. And if they decide that it's original and it meets all the proper forms, then they grant you a U.S. patent. And for 17 years, no one can use your invention without getting your permission and usually paying you royalties, okay? So that's the idea of a patent. It's a way of protecting an idea. Okay. Well, um, Thomas Edison definitely was a great inventor and he had a lot of patents, like I said, over 1,100. Uh, one of our uh, faculty, at IST has his own laboratory and next year or for sure the year after he will pass up Thomas Edison a number of patents. Oh. Some of you know him, his name is David Hall. Uh, David Hall runs Hall Labs mm -hmm. and he gets about 50 patents a year and his patents are in like 30 different fields which is wow. Really, really, really amazing. Um, I should tell you a little bit about David because 
He's such an interesting person. When I was at university, I, I wanted to learn all I could about science, chemistry, physics, everything, but I also wanted to learn about doing something with science, using it. And so I started doing a project by asking people, who is the most talented scientist at this university? And I asked a lot of people, and quite a few agreed that it was a guy named Dr. Tracy Hall, David's father. So I went to Tracy Hall and I said, hi, my name's Roger, and I want to work in your laboratory. And he said, well, I only hire graduate students. Are you a graduate student? And I'm a freshman. But, <laughs> but you know, I did the science fair. And uh, eventually, when I told him, but you don't have to pay me. I just want the experience. He finally hired me and paid me to work in his laboratory. And Dr. Hall was famous because he was the man that made the first artificial diamond. And he'd made that years before when he was working at General Electric. He had built a machine that could squeeze carbon under a million pounds pressure and then put electricity through it so you get very, very hot, the conditions inside the earth where diamonds are formed. Huh. And he could make man-made diamonds. Now his diamonds would come out and there were just lots and lots and lots of little specks. Very, very small diamonds, but you could use them for grinders and, and sandpaper and wills and things like that. Well, I went to work for Dr. Hall in his laboratory. Now, when he got to the university, he wanted to continue his research that he had done at General Electric. At General Electric, he got this really high pressure to mash the carbon atoms by having two big hydraulic anvils. They're like jacks, where you jack up your car with hydraulic oil, and he had great big ones pointing at each other. And his patent involved putting a ring around it, which he called a belt, so it wouldn't squirt out, and then he could get those high pressures. So he built one of those machines at the university and started doing research, and General Electric said, foul, foul, we have a patent on that machine. And Tracy said, yeah, I, I was the inventor. And he said, yes, but we were paying you, and you signed that patent to us. We own it. You can't use it at the university. So, being an inventioneer and respecting the patent rights of General Electric, Tracy Hall started to think, you know, the invention that no one else had been able to do. Other people have tried to squeeze it with hydraulic anvils or big jacks, but always, when the pressure got high, it would always squirt out. And his invention that he patented, the General Electric home, was this ring that would go around it so it couldn't squirt out, it would hold it in. Mm -hmm. And he says, so I can't use that ring because they've got it patented. So he started thinking, he started thinking, and then he came up with a really interesting idea. What if instead of using two, two jacks and a ring, what if I used four jacks? and made a tetrahedron. Or what if I use six jacks on every side and I can make the sample be a square? Now it'd be pushing from every side and so it wouldn't squirt out. And so he designed first the tetrahedral press, which means it's a little pyramid shape, and then the cubic press. 
And my job was to run the tetrahedral and the cubic press. Can I show you a picture of Dr. Hall and his cubic press? Wow. There he is, and you can see that's a big machine. And those big jacks push very hard towards the center, and as a result, he was able to make bigger, more exotic things. Now, my job was to prepare samples, and we'd take this special clay and drill a hole in them, and then usually we wanted high temperature, so I'd take a little tube of graphite that was hollow and stick it in the hole I drilled, and then I put in whatever sample. If I was going to make diamonds, I'd put in carbon. If I was going to make something really exotic like boron nitride or boron phosphide, I'd put those chemicals in, and then I'd put a little cap on, and then I would put a strip of tantalum metal. Tantalum is a metal that a lot of you haven't used very much, but it's very, very, very capable of carrying a lot of electricity and getting real hot without melting. So I put that on, put the whole thing together, put it in that press, and electricity would go in one of those jacks into the tantalum on one side, it would go through the graphite thing, make it white hot. And since it was under pressure, it wouldn't destroy itself. And I made all kinds of stuff, and it was a lot of fun. Well, I had a desk in his laboratory. There were some graduate students. They actually had little offices. <laughs> and then right next to me was another desk, and that was occupied by David Hall, I mean, excuse me, by Dr. Tracy Hall's son, David. Wow. And David uh, and I became very, very good friends in university. Here's a picture of David Hall. This is not when we were in college. <laughs> this is when he was already a very, very successful inventor. Tracy Hall went on to perfect the making of diamonds, and he got so he could make diamonds in really strange shapes. So he would make a diamond like with a special hole in it to extrude wire and, and make drilling bits for drills. and. A lot of the things that, that happened in the diamond industry came through a company Dr. Hall started, which was Mega Diamond, which David later took over after his father passed away. So David now runs Hall Laboratories, and Hall Laboratories are a model of what Edison did with Edison Laboratories. He uses the same approach, and he has all these inventions. So David Hall came here to IST and filmed a wonderful course on how, how do you manage patents, how do you do research. It, it's really a, a good course. I think a lot of you college-level students are going to want to take it. But anyway, so patents are a way that you can protect your invention so when you have a good idea, hopefully you'll be able to recover some of the money you spend on it. You have patents, don't you? I, I do. You do? Don't I? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a lot of patents, when it's not like 1,100, but I have sufficient for my needs patents that are related to hydrogen energy, uh -huh. uh, hydrogen engine, things like that. And, and many of these patents go clear back to the 1970s when I was really starting my hydrogen research. And 17 years later, those patents ran out. And so I've been getting new patents, but you, you only get 17 years of protection. A lot of my new patents have to do with things like computer security and 
things of that sort. But yes, I do have patents. So in a patent, you have to divulge how the whole invention works. So then anybody can make the invention. Yeah, one of the things that you must do to make a patent valid, uh -huh. you can get a patent, but it's not valid and you can't enforce it against someone that infringes your patent if it is not enabling. And under the law, what they mean by enabling, your patent has to teach a person with ordinary skill in the art how they could practice the invention. So one of the things about a patent is it lets everybody know that it's yours and they have to pay a royalty. The other thing it does is it tells everybody about the technology and so they can continue inventing and doing great things. So sometimes mm -hmm. would it be wise not to file a patent? Well, <laughs> you know more than you're acting. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a large library of things that we have invented for which I have not filed a patent. Now, part of the law of patent law in the United States says that if you publish an idea, you just write a paper and publish it, then you must file the patent within one year or you lose the right. And the invention then goes in public domain, which means anybody can use it. But if you don't publish it, if you keep your idea secret for a few years while you're perfecting it, working on it, making it better and better, well then you can patent it and it'll be valid for 17 years after the date you finally file the application. So as I'm developing pieces, I don't run out and see how quick I can, I can file a patent, unless I think I've got competition that's getting close, then I go patent it, you know, hooray, hooray. But most of my stuff is way out there, and so I file the patents when I have it ready to go to market, and yes, I do that. So a good inventioner knows when and how, huh? When and how. Yeah. Knowing how to use patents to help you get your technology deployed and utilized by the world that you're trying to take care of is a big part of inventioneering. And so you have to know the science, you have to have the engineering math skills, but you also need to know a little bit about law, about patent law, you have to know how to put together a company, how to read a financial statement, an income statement, a balance sheet, how to do a cash flow analysis or how to read one that your accountants give you. You need to know how to market your idea. So you need to learn a little bit about advertising, sales, all these different, and then you need to learn about manufacturing and quality control. And so inventioneering, and this thing I like about it, it's, it's such a big, wide area and you get to learn all these different things. And to really be successful as an inventioner, the more of that you understand, the better. Now, big companies, they do it with a lot of people, each one covering a different base. They have a team of 10,000 people. But when you're starting out, you probably have a team of one, like Toby was talking about. <laughs> and so the more you know about these different things, the better. And I studied advertising, public relations, accounting, uh, all of these different fields, a little bit of law. I studied patents after I got through college, through what Bill Lear called the school of hard knocks. <laughs> but yeah, it's important to understand those things. And that's what we try to prepare inventioners for, 
if you have a really good idea, but you can't get it off the ground, then history will march on without the benefit of your wonderful idea. So it's important to know what and how to do with it. We have other questions, but then we have questions on patents. I don't know if you want to keep going on patents or if you want to go to the other questions. So it's up to me. Huh? It's up to you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Can you give me a vow or something? No, I, I'm very social. You can give me whatever you want. Um, they want to know if you can renew a patent after 17 years if, it's, if the invention is improved. You can renew a trademark. Uh -huh. So if you trademark something, that's also done in the patent office, and you can renew trademarks. But patents cannot be renewed. Mm -hmm. But you can patent enhancements if they involve a novel new invention. And remember, if anybody has ever published your idea in any document, then your patent's not valid. It has to be a new idea. Uh, an interesting side note is you know who a patent agent was? A patent agent is the guy that looks at the applications to see whether or not they should be approved. Mm -hmm. There was a guy that worked in the patent office in Switzerland, yep. and his name was Einstein. So just seems sitting there reading all those ideas every day, maybe gets a lot of good ideas in your head. Really learn. Yeah. Okay, we're going to go to the next question. Okay, then. the next question. This is like Jeopardy. <laughs> okay. For five hundred dollars. There might be a little more for this one. Okay. How do you balance a chemistry equation? Next question. <laughs> Some how do I do it? Yeah, we got some students who really want to know how you do it. <laughs> how do I do it? Yeah. Whoa, chemistry is such a wonderful field. Mm -hmm. um, I have someone up here tell me it's not quite as good as physics. <laughs> and that'd be well. Dr. Murray, but that's because he's a physicist. But you know, um, chemistry is the study of the building blocks of the universe. And we have some wonderful chemistry classes and we have a lot of students studying chemistry, and a lot of our graduates have gone into chemistry. When I was in the university, chemistry was one of the fields that I got a bachelor's degree in. So I love chemistry, but physics was another one. <laughs> Give me a minute. So um, very often, students that are taking chemistry are given a, uh, a challenge to balance an equation of a reaction and balance a reaction. And for some reason, it seems to be hard for some students to kind of get it. Now, I like to think of things in a way like everything's the excitement of how nature works. So that's how I go about it. And a lot of mentors or, or teachers will get a piece of paper and show, well, you just go like this. When you balance a reaction, you take all of the the chemicals or all the atoms, all the molecules that you're going to react and put them down. And then you draw an arrow and you say, and after the react, they go to this and you put the end products that you're going to have. Like you could have hydrogen and oxygen over here and then you react it and you get water. But then you've got to balance it so that it comes out in the right, maybe it's easier to show. So. See, I think if people could just see, if you could just zoom in and see atoms, it'd be so easy. We just look at them. There it is. 
So that's where Avogadro comes in, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Avogadro says that if you have, how many? Avogadro's number. Six point. Louder. <laughs> My mind blank. 6.02 times 10 to the 23rd. Times 10 to the 23rd atoms. It would be grams. grams. Yeah, for example, if you had 6.02 times 10 to the 23rd, I mean, that's a number that, that's a number that makes trillions look little. Because it's <laughs> it 23 zeros. 23. <laughs> then that many hydrogen atoms would weigh one gram. Wow. Because the atomic number for hydrogen is one. And that many atoms of oxygen would weigh 16 grams because that's the atomic weight of oxygen and so forth. Wow. You know, let's try this another way. Uh, we haven't seen Tina for a long time, no, have we? No, we like Tina. Uh, Tina, go ahead and put on the video about this, will you? We don't have one. So how many would like to see Tina? Tina, you know those really snappy new little atoms that I have? Could you, could you get them for me? Do you know where they're at? Come, come. Do you want to see her? Let's we hear it for Tina. Right now. Oh, we like <laughs> Tina. Yeah. So remember, there she is. Tina is the person that found all those pictures while we've been talking. She did not know, thank you. She did not know we were going to talk about patents, about David Hall, about no. Tracy Hall, about the press. She's so she's just finding stuff. So here's an interesting little box. It says, Snatums. Snatums. These are ingenious. If any of you uh, uh, learn science on YouTube, you may have heard of a channel called Rotassium. And if you have, then you've probably heard of the guy that runs that channel. Uh, one of my favorite uh, people on the internet, a guy named Dr. Derek Muller. Dr. Derek Muller invented these. And I don't know him personally, but I'm going to get to know him because I think he's really amazing. But I love what he's done with these atoms. Uh, he made atoms that help us visualize things in chemistry in an amazing way. For example, these little eggs <laughs> represent hydrogen atoms. And why are they stuck together? Well, they stick together because that is how hydrogen is in nature. Hydrogen is an atom that gets very lonely all by itself, <laughs> so it finds another hydrogen atom and forms the H2 molecule. So this is the hydrogen gas that's in our tank we run our cars with, okay? So I'm gonna dig deeper because we got layers, there we go. Now I've got some oxygen atoms. And you notice there's some little flat surfaces on here. So if I take one of my hydrogen atoms, I can glue it on with magnetism, okay? And there is so much science you can get out of here, so much you can learn. Some of you remember that the water molecule actually looks kind of like Mickey Mouse. Remember that? Mm -hmm. It's got the two little cute ears and the oxygen. Why does the hydrogen 
pull over to one side like that. And how big of a deal is that? Well, these are made in such a way that you can really kind of see what the molecules are like. And that's really interesting. So hydrogen has one flat side because it reacts involving just one electron. And oxygen has two flat sides, so two things can connect to it because it reacts involving two electrons. And for you guys that have been studying chemistry, you remember that different atoms have electrons around them. And how many electrons they have is the same as the number of protons they have in the heart. Protons are right down in the nucleus of the atom. Electrons surround it. Well, electrons are negative charged. Protons are positively charged. And so it's like magnets. The proton keeps the electron from escaping because it wants to be connected to that, like a north and a south pole magnet. Are you with me? But here's an interesting thing. When you start putting electrons around an atom, like here's our hydrogen atom, only has one electron, it's in a shell, which is a shell very close to the atom. You say a shell, I'm gonna call them shells because I've got multiple shells that we put electrons in as the atom gets bigger and becomes a different material. But in the innermost shell, which is so close to the nucleus, Two electrons will fit, and that's all. Hydrogen has one, but that shell wants two, so hydrogen is going to react with things. And when two hydrogens are together, they kind of share those electrons, and that means that shell is full, and so this is a kind of a stable thing, okay? Interestingly, that's what oxygen does too. It reacts with another oxygen, but it needs two electrons to be shared in order for it to react, and so that's when we get into things like a double bond. I'm gonna go ahead and see if I can build a double bond for us here. And boom, now we've got two oxygens together, and they're sharing two electrons because they have in the second shell, the, the bottom shell of oxygen is full, it's got two. The second shell, or for you chemists, the P shell, has six electrons, and in the, in, except for the inner shell, the outer shells want to have eight. They have six, so they have two spots for reactions. Now, oxygen then hooks up with another oxygen, and they both share two electrons, and, and you get this. When oxygen reacts with hydrogen, it needs two hydrogens because hydrogen's only got one electron to share, and the atom needs two. And I'm, I'm trying to talk to two groups, the ones that have chemistry and the ones that don't. I think I'm end up talking right in between. No. <laughs> but at any rate, so, this starts getting really neat as you start talking about it. So here's hydrogen. Isn't it interesting, though, that they're off like this? The electrons are pushed around that way because in that shell, that outer shell, there are already six electrons. And I'm going to show you something that I think will illustrate this real well. I now have a black 
uh, model, which represents carbon. And I'm going to connect carbon, and it's got a desire to hook up, not with two like oxygen, but it wants to hook up with four hydrogens. And that happens to be the shape we call a tetrahedron, a little pyramid like Tracy Hall made. Well, now these electrons spread out like that because they're held in by the nucleus. The proton is positive and it's pulling in those negative charged electrons, but the electrons repel each other, so they're all pushing each other as far away as they can. If this one went any further away, this one would push it back. So it goes to this shape. Well, now let me go back to the oxygen. If you look at this, it's kind of like these two electrons and these two are about the same. And that's because on this inner orbital, there are two more electrons here and here. And so they're pushing the two hydrogen atoms around there to connect. And this is a big deal. That's what's so fun about chemistry is when you start understanding it just a little bit like we're going to start doing right now, it's really interesting. Now I've got two water molecules, two H2O, there they are, an oxygen with two hydrogens. And notice they're both Mickey Mouse. The hydrogen atoms are both on one side. When these two hydrogen atoms are up here like this, they become a little bit positive. So this is a polar molecule. It's more positive here and more negative down here, which means when it's floating around in a cup, it's going to line up like this because there is a negative attraction to this positive side from these two electrons. And so these form chains. It's a polar molecule, and you can tell that from these, these models, which Dr. Derrick, I like that, Dr. Derrick made. <laughs> so we could get another water molecule, and we could just keep building this chain, and that's what happens when you have water. You say, well, why is he making such a big deal out of that chain? Well, because it's why we're alive. If this wasn't a polar molecule, then water wouldn't stick together like it does, and at room temperature, it would evaporate. We wouldn't have liquid water at normal temperature. So that's a big deal, a big the deal. fact that it's polar. And we're learning all about that right here with chemistry. Do the sizes really matter? Are there, there kids are wanting to know if the sizes really well, differentiate? The size, this, this has six plus two, eight electrons going around it. Mm -hmm. And when you look at, at atoms, you've got the nucleus in there with the protons and the neutrons, but it's like a tiny, tiny speck compared to the electron cloud. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of representing the size of the electron cloud. Okay. And yeah, it's, it's bigger. And as the atoms get bigger and bigger and bigger, you get more and more electrodes. Yeah. Okay, yeah, it does. So. When we put four hydrogens on one carbon like this, we made something kind of interesting. We made methane. This is natural gas. And all it is is carbon and hydrogen. You could use that to heat your home, right? 
And this is so fun. What if we got another <laughs> carbon atom? I love it. I peel off one of these hydrogens and I stick the two carbons together. Uh -huh. Now we need some more hydrogen to fill up all the places that it wants to react. There we go. Now look at that. We made a cute little animal. Now there's two carbons and six hydrogens. That is no longer methane, is it? No, what is it's it? It's ethane. It's ethane. Ethane, yeah. And it gets better. What if we took off it's another better. hydrogen, <laughs> put on another carbon. Ooh, now we need some more uh, hydrogens, don't we, to finish this molecule. Look at that little cute thing. Isn't that darling? Yeah, and these can turn around in different shapes. And that's actually what the molecule can do. But guess what that is? So now there's, let's count them, one, two, three carbons. Uh -huh. That's propane. You ever use the propane grill? That's uh -huh. what it is. And if I rip off that hydrogen, put it back on here, it's methane. Just the same thing. It's in how many of them are together. And, you know, we could probably keep going. If we, <laughs> If we really were into this kind of well, stuff, I think we are. <laughs> now we've got, oh, we're going to need some more hydrogens. Thank goodness Dr. Derek gave us more. There we got, are all of the spots covered? Yeah, now there's one, two, three, four carbons and enough hydrogens for all of the reaction sites. So we have butane. So have you seen a butane lighter? There it is. <laughs> that, that's how you make it. And one of my favorite, we've got to do one more. Okay, let's do one more. Okay, so one, two, we've got four. What if we were to bring four more carbons? This is getting to be kind of a monster, isn't it? Look at it now. We're going to need a million, not quite, but a million uh, hydrogens to fill all of these different locations. Fill them all up. Boom, boom, boom. Isn't this fun? Mm -hmm. it, it actually this, really is. And how are we balancing the equation, you're wondering, we're right? Going to do well, that. We're going to. Next slide. Okay, look at this one. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight carbons. And look at all those hydrogens. That is a brand new compound. It's not methane, ethane, propane, or butane. It's octane, meaning there's eight carbons. Octane is one of the main constituents of gasoline. Interesting. There is another version of octane that has exactly the same number of hydrogen atoms and the same number of carbons, but it has a different shape. I wonder if we, wonder if we could make it. Do you think we could? If we pulled a carbon off and put one down there, now you can see we've got two carbons coming off one. And now over on this side, what if we took that off and that off, put that on there. So now we've got, oop, 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 let's look, wait for it. Okay, now we've got three carbons all hooked together here on this end. And we've got to get these hydrogens back on because it's going to end up with exactly the same eight number of carbon atoms. There it is. But it's kind of glummed up a little bit. You see that? That is, remember the, when it was straight, it was octane. Mm -hmm. Now it's iso-octane. And I love iso-octane because 
when I was doing research on the hydrogen engine, I had to compare it to gasoline. And every time you buy gas, it's, it's a grouping of different compounds. So in science, it's a little confusing. You want to have something that's always the same. So I use ice octane as my version of gasoline. And I use this in my research for years. So there it is. Ice octane, isn't that fun? That is really fun. Yeah, and if I just rip off one carbon like that, I'm back to methane. And if I have two, it's ethane. If I have three, it's propane. Um, here's something maybe you don't see happening. And this is when you start finding out why chemistry is so fun. I'm going to go back together and let's say, well, what if we pull one of these hydrogens off and put an oxygen in there? Let's start with just one carbon. Oops. And did we get them all covered? There we go. So now, that's a lot like methane. Remember, methane was carbon with four hydrogens. I pulled one hydrogen back here, put an oxygen in the middle. This is what we call a hydroxyl ion. By putting that oxygen in there, we changed methane. Guess what we changed it into? Methanol. It's now alcohol. And we can go on through. If we put in two, then we have ethanol. We know about that. Ethanol is what they put in drinks. And we can have propanol just by changing one little thing. Another thing that's kind of fun is if you put on these chains, if you put a, um, an oxygen on every carbon, you have sugar. So you can see how these different molecules go together. But you know, we're just having fun with an invention. Let me tell you why I call this an invention. See if you can figure this out. If I have two magnets and I push them together, they stick together. I pull them apart, I turn one around, and then push them together, and they resist. You've all played with magnets and know how that works, right? So that says that if I have two of these and I put them together with magnets and they snap together, that means that this must be north pole, this must be south, for example. So then when I get another of the same kind and push them together, they're going to repel each other, aren't they? But they don't. They don't. When I saw that, I thought, Dr. Derry, what have you done? You have destroyed mag magnetism. But you know, you need them that way so you can see how all this reacts. And I had to just sit there and sit there, and I'm thinking of Area 51 and my tools. I could just crack one of these dudes oh. open and see how he did that. that hard. <laughs> but I said, no, no, that wouldn't be right. I'm going to see if I can figure out how he could do that. Because I think it's really clever, very, very clever. I think I figured out a way, and I, I have to admit, I did experiment a little bit and found there's some little balls that are kind of loose. It was, it was loose. It was a loose little ball. Time's up. That means we're out of time. <laughs> so we're going to very, very quickly, we're going to bounce an e balance an real equation. Fast, like yeah, we're like going to do it real fast. fast. This, this so is going to be fast okay. balancing because okay, we're running we plumb out of time. I have to put, put these back together. Anyway. 
get out. Is there a time? There we go. So here's an oxygen okay. molecule, and we need the hydrogen molecule. Here they are, and we're trying to make water. So here's our reaction. Oxygen plus hydrogen equals water. And if we put that on a reaction, I wonder if Tina bought me my little thing to write. Um, Tina, where's my whiteboard? Okay, she'll get it. If I try to react these, I've got my two hydrogens here, so that's good. And I can take one of my oxygens out, I need that, but then I have an oxygen left over. So this equation, or this reaction is not balanced. If I put all those together, I end up with an extra oxygen floating around, which doesn't work. So what I have to do then is I have to use two hydrogen molecules over here, and I end up making two waters, then I use up these. Are you coming? Thank you. I, oh, let's hear it for Tina. Maybe we shouldn't. She didn't erase very good, she did she? She Time out. <clears throat> this is what we do backstage. <laughs> this is science live. Yeah. <laughs> Done. Now, okay, let's just see for you chemistry majors. So you have H2, these two little guys, plus, hello, O2 goes to water, H2O. And what the teacher or the assignment says you have to do is you have to balance this reaction. And so we can see that if I take an oxygen molecule and a hydrogen molecule and make water, that when I do those, I'm gonna have an oxygen left over because only one oxygen here, there's two hydrogens. So the way you solve that is you put in one more hydrogen molecule. So the way you write that down here is two hydrogen molecules plus one oxygen molecules creates two water molecules, and it's balanced. Bravo. <laughs> and I'll see you next time. Thank school in Australia. Really clever guy. We need a good chemist around it. No, he's a physicist.